Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. On the way this hour, we'll hear from some trying to get into the recreational cannabis industry in Illinois. They want state lawmakers to make some changes. It's another anniversary of the Gettysburg Address this month. We'll look back on what Lincoln was thinking when he crafted his speech. School lockdown drills are an unfortunately typical part of students' lives, but that doesn't make it any easier for parents to talk about. We'll hear more. There's a disturbing trend on some city streets, illegal attachments that can turn pistols into machine guns, firing several rounds a second. We'll get a report. And a mountain lion captured Springfield's attention last month when he wandered into the city, a journey that started in Nebraska. Wildlife officials captured the cougar. Now he's in a new home. We'll check in. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up this hour, we'll hear from a Lincoln scholar about the Gettysburg Address. What inspired Abraham Lincoln? There are growing concerns about how handguns are being retrofitted to fire more like machine guns. And a young student asks a difficult question about school lockdowns. That and more ahead on Statewide. Those trying to break into Illinois' recreational cannabis industry are having a hard time. Lawsuits and the COVID-19 pandemic delayed licensing. Some operators say they're edging closer to failure before they even get started. Cannabis advocates are asking state lawmakers to listen to them. So are they? Alex Degman takes a look. Recreational cannabis became legal in Illinois in January 2020. Champion is among the most progressive programs in the nation. It promised expungement of cannabis records and a way forward for people disproportionately impacted by old laws to get involved in the industry. But nearly three years in, the frustration, the anxiety, and disappointment continue growing. At a recent luncheon hosted by the City Club of Chicago, people in the cannabis industry let it all out. Elizabeth Vargas Jaimes is executive director of the Illinois Independent Craft Growers Association. We stand to lose a lot. The idea of social equity being successful, Governor Pritzker in this debate saying, hey, people are opening up shop, people are getting loans. That is not the case. That felt like a gaslight moment to me for someone who's been in the industry this long. Since that panel, two social equity dispensaries opened in Chicago, and Governor J.B. Pritzker announced that nearly $9 million in fully forgivable loans is now available for social equity license holders. Incremental steps in a process that still has much longer to go. Vargas Jaimes pointed out that there are only a few people who can actually change things. Right now, I think it's a calling in of our state legislator and everybody who is involved and wants to see the success because we have to rebuke the status quo. So is the legislature doing anything? Well, yes and no. There are active pieces of legislation addressing some concerns, but their futures are unclear. State Representative Marcus Evans is sponsoring a measure that would take cannabis regulation away from agencies overseeing it now and placing it with the Cannabis Control Commission. It's a seven-member panel appointed by the governor with an executive director at the helm. When I tell a person, well, if you have a dispensary, you go to the Department of, of uh, IDFPR, you go to the Department of um, you know, Financial Regulations, what have you, and then, but if you got to grow, you go to the Department of Ag. But if you have this, you go to the Department of Revenue. It gets confusing because time is money. He introduced this in 2021, not long after this General Assembly was sworn in. Evans says it makes sense. For example, California has the Department of Cannabis Control. Michigan has the Cannabis Regulatory Agency. 
and Washington State consolidates liquor and cannabis regulation into the Liquor and Cannabis Board. For some in the Illinois industry, this kind of commission is necessary. My name is Akili Parnell, and I'm CEO of Umi Farms, which is an Illinois-based social equity, craft cultivation, and dispensary company. Parnell's company has licenses for a dispensary and craft grow facility. He also applied for a transporter license. He says a centralized commission would have helped him navigate all of that. It would 100% help the licensees, and I think the consumers, because there's one-stop shop for guidance on you know how to operate, guidance on what the product should look like, guidance on you know recalls and consumer complaints and just general information, as opposed to several different you know seven different government agencies with different processes and different approaches. The measure to create the commission was assigned to the House Rules Committee in March 2021, which is typically where bills languish until they die at the end of the General Assembly's two-year term, and that's approaching in January. Evans' bill joins some others that have languished since 2021. One would let dispensaries deliver cannabis to homes and businesses. That's in the Rules Committee. Another would set up parameters for scoring applications for those delivery licenses. Rules. Another measure specifies how many delivery licenses can be issued and where the delivery businesses can get their product. But that's a Senate bill, so it's an assignments, the Senate version of rules. Representative Evans says it's hard to gather enough support when you're pushing complex legislation. I think that's up to me as a sponsor uh, and other advocates, and it's growing support, you know. Uh, that's not always a bad thing, the delay, because you want good policy to be good, right, to be great. Ideally, you want it to be as, as close to 100 percent perfect as possible. He says he's working on it, but we shouldn't, quote, bet the baby's college fund on it passing before new lawmakers come in. Yet another delay, and Doug Kelly, executive director of the Cannabis Equity Illinois Coalition, sounds about out of patience. In over three years, nothing has changed. Um, the issues that we're talking about now were there two years ago. We're talking about basically the same issues over and over and over. And like I say, every legislation cycle is something else more important than cannabis. I'm Alex Dagman. A young male mountain lion that traveled from Nebraska to Springfield is now at the exotic Feline Rescue Center in Center Point, Indiana. The mountain lion was captured in a residential area of Springfield back in October. And I had a chance to talk with Joe Taft, who founded and runs the Rescue Center, where about 120 big cats live, for an update. From our point of view, he is doing surprisingly well. You know, when he came, he was pretty upset. He had been sedated and then he had to be sedated again. The cage we were going to put him in, or the enclosure rather, earlier housed three cougars uh, that had come from California, but they had all been captive cougars. Uh, so we wanted to go over this cage very thoroughly on, with, the under, with the impression that this guy would probably challenge a lot of this cage. Uh, so we kept, kept the cougar in actually in an old circus cage for three days while we completely redid the existing enclosure. Our veterinarian immobilized him again where we did a thorough exam. He was really tick infested and uh, we treated him for that, gave him all of his regular vaccinations that he should have for life in captivity and took him outside to a, to a much more substantial cage. Actually, the first two days, he hid in a in a box. He found a box, and he pretty much stayed in there, but he came out at night, and he ate well. Uh, at this point, he's not hiding in the box all the time. He's coming out. He's moving around. He's a lot 
calmer than I expected him to be. What we're hoping to do with him, um, we are in the process of building a, a new clinic, and there are no other animals around that clinic. And we thought we might fence off about an acre just for him. He won't be in the public view at all, and he won't be in any of the traffic areas of the existing facility. An acre certainly isn't Nebraska to Springfield, but still it's it's a fairly sizable area. It'll give him a chance to run. It'll give him a chance to hide. It'll have an environment that he can interact with and hopefully find interesting do you receive a lot of animals this way? Is that uh, how a lot of them wind up coming to your facility? Well, we don't get many that have come quite this route. I mean, most of the animals we have here have been captive-born, and a lot of the animals here have come through various government agencies, as did this one. The mountain lion, as you would mentioned, had been tracked from Nebraska all the way to Springfield, are you finding that more mountain lions are, are making those types of journeys outside of their native area? Interesting turn of phrase that a wildlife biologist used the other day. Cougars are obligate dispersers, which means that at a certain age, the male offsprings will disperse in, in search of a mate. And unfortunately, what happens to some of these guys they wander outside of areas that currently contain cougar population into areas that no longer contain cougar populations. And then they just keep walking. You know, he would have walked forever looking for a mate. And, of course, his best chance of finding a mate would have been if he would have gone pretty much straight north or gone all the way to Florida. So, he, you know, he had a lot of empty territory to go. You know, when he was radio collared, they radio collared a batch of 19 cougars, and he is the only one that left the state of Nebraska. I know a lot of people in Springfield had watched the uh, the drama unfold of the mountain lion making its way to town, but were a little disappointed to hear that it was being taken uh, out of the wild. It was going to be you know put into a, a facility like yours. You know what would you say to people that that were upset with that idea? disappointing. It's disappointing to us as well. One of the Illinois state biologists said to us, from just outside of Springfield, if he would have gone 15 degrees north or 15 degrees south, he could have gone forever. Once he wandered into Springfield, they tracked him very closely with the hope that rather than go further into town, he would turn and go back, you know, out of town and into a rural setting and then he could wander on in his, as he would. Once he got further into town and appeared to be quite comfortable in town and was in what was described to me as heavily residential areas, then they took the situation to be potentially dangerous. You know, it was a, a public safety issue. And looking at it as a public safety issue, they then had two options. They could either euthanize him which is unfortunately the way these incidents usually end, or they could immobilize him and find him a place to go. The possibility of taking him back to, ne to Nebraska uh, was not open to them because state authorities in Nebraska would not allow him to come back. Urban settings could be prime hunting ground for an animal like that. Your dog, your cat, and your small child 
So there were some tough decisions that had to be made. And I'm pleased that he's still alive and that he has a chance to have some kind of a life. I know these uh, these are not pets. Do you give him a name when he's there? I just wondered how you know how attached that do you get to them in that respect? All of our cats here have names. Most of them will respond to those names. But again, most of the cats here have been raised in captivity and you know are accustomed to being called by a name. We are call, currently calling him NE110, which is how he's identified on his ear tag. Like Nebraska, I guess NE. Yes, okay. exactly. Now, hopefully we'll come up with a more creative name at some point. But, and whether he will ever, you know, answer to that name, once we put him in his permanent enclosure, we won't really have any reason for him to answer to us. We had a situation in northern Illinois. One was hit by a car and also had apparently traveled a distance to get there. You know, what should people know about them? They seem to be you know, not showing up on a regular basis, but it is becoming a bit more common. Well, you know, they are coming from places like Nebraska, from South Dakota, uh, from areas where there are breeding populations. There have been radio collared cougars that have been tracked for thousands of miles. So it's not surprising to find cougars wandering into Chicago or Springfield or even New York. There was one hit by a car just outside of New York City a few years back. They wander off, they keep wandering and looking for something that they're not going to find. Joe Taft is founder and director of the Exotic Feline Rescue Center in Center Point, Indiana. It has taken in the mountain lion that traveled from Nebraska all the way to Springfield before it was captured last month. The First Lutheran Church in Galesburg recently restored an essential part of its historic building. Jane Carlson brings us that story. The church was organized in the 1800s by Swedish immigrants. Today, worshipers gather in a Gothic-style building at Seminary and Water Streets, built in the 1920s. It is the third location of the church in Galesburg with a sanctuary and balconies that can seat 800 people, towering stained glass windows, detailed woodwork, a soaring ceiling, and excellent acoustics. The bell that's here, however, was from the previous church. It was actually cast in 1871, and when they built this new church, they moved the bell into the new church, and it's been here ever since. That's Dave Howland, vice president of the church council and a member of the church's building and grounds committee. He says the church's 48-inch bell was made in Cincinnati, Ohio. Historically, it rings at First Lutheran seven times every Sunday morning, 15 minutes before church begins. Howland says it also rings for special occasions like weddings and to commemorate days like the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth. It is a revered tradition in a church that Howland says is chock full of history and beauty. Like the voices in the choir, the bell's tone echoes inside the church's hallowed walls. But earlier this year, after 15 decades in use, the bell at First Lutheran Church stopped tolling. We went up to check because we thought maybe the rope had broken or something. And what we found was that the carriage that the bell sits on had rusted and one side had, had uh, fallen down to where the bell couldn't, couldn't move anymore. 
The bell in its carriage weighed 2,500 pounds. It's rung from a rope that hangs from the ceiling of the church's second floor, but the bell itself is only accessible from a ladder that goes up a brick wall to the tower. And to repair it would not be an easy or inexpensive project. We really missed it. It, it felt like part of the, not just part of the ceremony of, of, of the Sunday service, but part of the spirit of the church was missing. Howland says it took months to find a company that could restore the historic bell. Eventually, they found McShane Bell Company, west of St. Louis, to take on the job. We needed to replace not just the carriage that it's set on, which is like two A-frames, one on either side, but also the, the uh, timbers that they set on had deteriorated too because of the rusting of the frame. The church estimated it would cost $13,000 for the work. Howland says they asked the congregation to donate money to help bring the bell back to life. We had made the estimates, including shipping and a contingency fund and, and uh, the membership uh, and, and also some uh, outside non-members contributed enough money that it, it not only paid for the project but also covered the contingency fund. Howland says all the parts were replaced except for the bell itself. And once the restoration was complete, the church bell rang once again on Reformation Sunday. A sound the congregation hopes can continue for another 150 years. I'm Jane Carlson. Still ahead, the Gettysburg Address. A researcher gives us more details of how it came to be. That's on the way. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, the story of the Gettysburg Address began long before that day Abraham Lincoln stood at the speaker's platform and delivered those famous 272 words. This week marks another anniversary of what some consider the greatest speech ever written. A few years ago, we spoke with Professor Dr. Martin Johnson about how it came to be in honor of the anniversary, and today we revisit that conversation. Lincoln's journey to Gettysburg is really what created the speech. Uh, intellectual journey, but also a physical journey. He started out in Washington, uh, D.C., with one idea of the speech, one early draft of the speech on paper, but then he, when he got to Gettysburg, he revised it, uh, especially the morning of the speech after visiting the battlefield, and then on the stand itself, when he spoke, he added words and changed words uh, spontaneously, it would appear, so that the speech that we call the Gettysburg Address was really created over the course of several days as a result of this really remarkable intellectual and uh, physical journey. Now, we think of politicians today as having speech writers, in fact, a whole gang of speech writers that, uh, you know, put things together. Lincoln did this, though, on his own. Yes, Lincoln wrote um, all of his speeches, uh, almost all everything that went out under his name. In fact, a couple of months after the Gettysburg Address, uh, when it was published, uh, people said, well, Lincoln couldn't have written that. And the White House actually sent out a press release saying, no, Lincoln writes everything that uh, goes out under his name except for a few diplomatic dispatches and a couple of minor things of that sort. Now, he knew the war had been costly, though he knew it had been brutal. Uh, but you say when he visited Gettysburg, did it bring something home to him then? Did he, did he witness something there then that was, you know, that he had not expected? Yes, I think he did experience uh, Gettysburg in a way that he did not expect. Now, he had seen photographs of the battlefields, of the dead on the battlefields at Antietam and at Gettysburg just before going to Gettysburg. He visited the photography studio of his favorite photographer, Alexander Stephen Gardner. And um, he saw there photographs of Gettysburg, no doubt. 
and he but when he visited Gettysburg, he visited the battlefield and he saw the signs of the battle, the pockmarked buildings from the bullets, the uh, trees that had been uh, the bark had been injured in the in the battle, and people were able to point out and that there were graves uh, still of the Confederate dead were still all over the battlefield, and many of the Union soldier dead uh, graves were still there, too. They had not all been removed to the new, new cemetery. And so Lincoln knew the battlefield. He knew the sites of the battlefield. He visited some of the iconic places on the battlefield the morning of the um, beach. And when he went back to his room, he uh, initiated a, what I think is a unexpected revision, something that brings a new emphasis, a new emotionalism to the speech, and for the first time wrote the words, as far as we know, a new birth of freedom on in the Gettysburg Address. And, of course, the speech is known not only for being powerful, but being relatively a short speech that the, that the president gave, certainly shorter than we're used to with, with most politicians. Yet he's taking all of these things in and, and witnessing all of this. It seems to me like the he would have a, a a desire in some cases to write much longer to really expand on on what he'd seen and he did not necessarily do that he used brevity uh, to bring all of that together. Well, in part, that's because he was asked to to be brief. A few appropriate remarks is what he was asked to give, and he knew and those around him knew that he was not the main feature of the day. Of course, that was Edward Everett, the great orator, who's going to speak for two hours. So Lincoln knew he was supposed to give. He knew his part, and he spoke with people about his part, and he was very concerned about fulfilling expectations at Gettysburg. So he knew his part was relatively restrained, but it's this journey that helps to account, I think, for that brevity in the sense that he added uh, material to, um, he started out with that text in Washington, and then in, in Gettysburg he deleted some of that text and added new text uh, the morning of the speech, and then on the stand again. So he is uh, fashioning the speech as he goes along in part to fulfill the expectations of the day, but he's very, he's very conscious of what was expected from him. I've always wondered if the people who were there that day, did they, did they understand what they were hearing from the president? Uh, sometimes it can be even hard to hear in those settings, but, but did they really grasp what he, was, what he was trying to say? Is there evidence of that? Well, I took a close look at that, and, and I think everybody experienced the speech in their own way. There's good evidence that some people could not hear him, but there's also very good evidence that some people heard him and believed it was, from them first, a, a remarkable and a beautiful speech. And what I call the authentic legend of Lincoln at Gettysburg is verifiable. There's evidence in the contemporary record that uh, some people were brought to tears and that Lincoln himself displayed emotion and spoke in a way that many uh, people who knew him well found remarkable and unusual. Now, he did not always go out to these uh, these scenes. I guess what brought him to Gettysburg? What was the reasoning that he chose to, to make that appearance? Well, Lincoln, this is the only time, the first time, I should say, in Lincoln's presidency when he left Washington to give a speech or something of that sort. So it was a unique occasion in his presidency. And in part, uh, I believe it was because, as he called it, it was a an interesting ceremony. It will be an interesting ceremony, is what he said in a, in a letter of early November. Uh, because there would be Edward Everett would be there, this great orator, all the great political leaders of the country would be there. The, it was believed and is hoped that all the Union governors would attend. Now, in the end, there were only about a dozen Union governors, but still. So um, it was going to be a, 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 an event, a ceremony, an occasion that would be remarkable and known. And Lincoln also went to Gettysburg in part probably because Pennsylvania was essential for his reelection. 
and he was working closely with the governor of Pennsylvania. He was working closely with Pennsylvania operatives and other political figures to make sure that Pennsylvania remained in the Republican column in 1864. And even though he was uh, looking ahead to the election, at the same time, he didn't, he didn't really treat this speech um, as a political speech, though, did he? He did not, not in the sense that we might think of a political speech, but everything Lincoln said and did during the, during the Civil War expressed his political vision of the necessity of maintaining the Union, of um, also supporting the administration's policies that were essential for supporting the Union. So things like the draft, emancipation, um, and these measures, uh, revoking habeas corpus, for example, uh, income tax, these measures were highly contentious at the time. And so when Lincoln at Gettysburg essentially said, stay the course, we have to continue the struggle that we're in to ultimate victory, it was indeed a statement of high ideals and American purpose, but it was also for Lincoln a statement that the, the Union must be preserved. And Lincoln and those around him believed that the Republican Party, and the victory of Lincoln particularly, was almost essential for the preservation of the Union in 1864. And while we were talking about people who were in the crowd that day, uh, those who were recording this for posterity, uh, the reporters, people of that uh, sort who were there, did they really get what Lincoln was saying, and did they understand it to be such a momentous speech? Many of the people who heard Lincoln did consider it to be a momentous speech. It was taken down probably uh, in shorthand by a professional stenographer of the Associated Press, um, and I think I'm able to identify the reporter who did that. It's, it's not the one that many people have claimed. And then this speech was then telegraphed out to the country. But as soon as it hit the telegraphs, it started to be altered by the process of telegraphy and by reproduction. So there are many different versions of the Gettysburg Address began to circulate almost immediately. But no matter which of those early versions you look at, they all have essentially the same ideas. And friendly newspaper editors across the Union hailed the speech um, uh, opponents, of course, attacked Lincoln. It was usually right along party line, the reaction to the speech. When you're talking about his journey to Gettysburg. He left Washington. He was on a train. Uh, in, is there evidence that that is where most of the writing was done, most of the revisions were made? Well, the train journey is an iconic part of the, of the Lincoln legend. That is a part of the uh, legend that uh, is important for shaping the eventual text, but I was not able to find any evidence that Lincoln actually wrote on the train. I was able to reconstruct the train journey almost minute by minute, and it appears, though, that on the train, Lincoln began to think and talk with the politicians and others as he saw the countryside rolling by, that Lincoln was, in a sense, getting into a, a frame of mind that helped him think about Gettysburg and the meaning of it, but uh, actual written revisions uh, don't seem likely. Dr. Martin Johnson is a Lincoln scholar, and he's researched and written about the Gettysburg Address. This week marks the 159th anniversary of the speech, and if you'd like to see one of the rare handwritten editions of the Gettysburg Address, the Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield has it on display through November 28th.
This week saw some changes in state government. Illinois House Republicans selected a new leader. State Representative Tony McCombie of Savannah in northwestern Illinois will be the new House Minority Leader. She's the first woman to ever hold that role. She takes over for the outgoing leader Jim Durkin from suburban Western Springs when new lawmakers are sworn in in January. Durkin has led the caucus since 2013. He said in a post-election day announcement it was time for someone with new ideas to take charge. Also in the state Senate, John Curran of Lamont will be the new Senate Republican leader, replacing Dan McConkey. It was a bruising election cycle for Republicans. They lost every race for a statewide constitutional office and also gave up a few seats in the legislature. Also this week, Mary Jane Tice was officially sworn in as the new Chief Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. Tice was selected by her colleagues in the courts and began her three-year term in that role in late October. In the election this month, Democrats also won the two contested seats for the high court, giving them a 5-2 majority. A new state law requires Illinois public universities to establish a liaison for undocumented students. Maria Gardner-Lara reports on how Northern Illinois University is reaching those students. Members of Dream Action NIU greet fellow students when they recently hosted I Stand with Immigrants Day of Action, the group advocates for undocumented students on campus. Alondra, a political science major and member of the organization, says the need to tackle anti-immigrant sentiment continues despite former President Trump no longer in office. Especially like that comment that he made before he became president, saying that when Mexico brings its people, it's bringing its worst. I feel like a lot of people believed in that, and I think a lot of people still have that stereotype of like Mexicans or just immigrants, you know, in itself. So I feel like this day shows that not everyone thinks like that, and there is support and there is community. Professor Sandy Lopez says students generated the support for immigrants on campus through education and outreach. She's the director of the Undocumented Student Support Center on campus and credits the students' advocacy work for the space. My position would not exist if it were not for the undocumented students of Dream Action NIU who fought for this office, this position, this center, and the scholarship, the scholarship money that we have coming out of our center for years. They fought for it since 2014. Undocumented students don't qualify for federal aid, but do qualify for state funding. The RISE Act allows qualifying undocumented students to apply for state financial aid programs, including the State of Illinois Monetary Award Program, known as the MAP Grant. Undocumented students can also apply for institutional aid at public colleges and universities. Lopez explains the qualifications for applying for the alternative application. They have to have been in school in Illinois for three years, graduate from a high school, or get their GED. And if they meet those qualifications, their families have to pay taxes. She says tis a season where she's walking undocumented and students from mixed-status families through the application process. Mixed-status families are those in which at least one member of the household may be undocumented, such as a parent. Part of her job also entails informing the wider community about what's available to undocumented students. There's a lot of educating that has to happen, not on the part of the student, but on the high school counselors, on the administrators, on the teachers, on the parents and communities, right? To say, like, you are undocumented, but that doesn't stop you from going to higher education. Since the Supreme Court case Plyler v. Doe in 1982, all students, regardless of immigration status, from K through 12th grade have a right to attend school, but it did not specify rights after that. 
So higher ed is kind of that murky piece where each state determines how they're going to handle access to higher ed. In the state of Illinois, we're very fortunate. We've always been very friendly. Since 2003, undocumented students received the in-state tuition rate for college in Illinois. At least a dozen other states do the same. But, she says, many undocumented students may not be aware of what's available to them, especially with changes to the DACA program. The program gives eligible immigrants who arrived as children protection from deportation and a work permit for two years. The Trump administration attempted to end it, and since then it's been challenged in the courts. As of now, only those who have the DACA status can apply for renewals, leaving out otherwise eligible students. So those students think, well, if I can't get DACA, I can't go to school, which is not true, which is not true. And so we always tell students, you know, there's an opportunity here. NIU is not the only place that supports our students. She says what differentiates NIU is the resources dedicated to supporting undocumented students. That includes dedicated staffing for a director, assistant director, and graduate assistants. Last year, the state passed a bill requiring public colleges and universities to designate an employee to help undocumented students navigate financial aid and academic support. Amaria Garner Lara. Illinois saw a 3,000 percent increase in synthetic opioid overdose deaths over the past decade. Most of those are tied to fentanyl. It's 50 times more lethal than heroin. Two Republican lawmakers and McLean County's top prosecutor want to go harder after those who sell fentanyl. Eric Stock has details. McLean County State's Attorney Erica Reynolds says drug-induced homicide is the one homicide you can commit thousands of miles away. She recalls a recent overdose death in McLean County. Reynolds says prosecutors wanted to charge the supplier with drug-induced homicide, but they cannot prove who the supplier was without cooperation even though the suspected supplier had just been charged with dealing fentanyl. Frustratingly, the supplier was probation eligible on those offenses and without cooperation could not be tried directly to the drug-induced homicide. Reynolds notes anything less than 15 grams of fentanyl delivery is eligible for probation. That could be 7,000 times larger than a lethal dose. Reynolds joined State Senators Sally Turner and Sue Rezin at a news conference to announce a bill that tries to curb the fentanyl epidemic. It would make it a crime punishable by up to 40 years in prison to sell drugs such as Adderall and Vicodin that contained fentanyl. Here's Senator Sally Turner. Well, let me just say that if you haven't been personally touched by someone that passed away from fentanyl poisoning, I can guarantee you, you will. Illinois reported more than 2,600 synthetic opioid deaths last year. The proposal also makes it a felony to use a smartphone or other electronic device to sell fentanyl. State Senator Sue Rezin of Morris is a co-sponsor and is the Senate's deputy minority leader. Rezin says drugs laced with the fentanyl are often sold online to unsuspecting buyers. Many people are just going on their social media, going to a website, going to, you know, somebody's page going to a drug dealer, purchasing it, and then the drug's delivered. They do not know. They are assuming that the drug is fine to take. State Senator Sally Turner says she hopes lawmakers will take up the bill during the fall veto session. It started today. I'm Eric Stock. Coming up, school lockdowns and the often difficult conversations with young students. That's ahead on Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, just ahead, we'll hear about a lawsuit over how the state took some children from their parents. But up next, member station WBEZ has a series called Kids Ask, 
A question from a six-year-old to her mother was why does her school do lockdown drills? They've become a normal part of school life, but still disheartening for parents to talk about. Susie Ahn has more. Think back to when you were in school. Your teacher is in the middle of a lesson when suddenly... The fire alarm goes off, and kids start goofing off as they file out the door. It's been a part of school life for decades. But something else that's become normal for this generation of kids but unfamiliar to their parents are lockdown drills. It's a requirement for Illinois schools, and six-year-old Edie had her first this fall. We did a lockdown drill. We got in the bathroom and we turned in the light and we locked the door. Edie is a sweet, soft-spoken first grader. The metal detectors and bag checks every morning at her Chicago public school didn't faze her since she was familiar with the process at the airport. But staying quiet in a bathroom with her classmates was a new one. And she had this question for her mom, Betty Tran. I asked her that why do we do safety drills? Mommy said, well, we do safety drills in case um, a bad person gets into school just to make sure you're safe and everyone else is safe. Edie understood the answer, but it led to yet another question. I think you said, well, what if the robber had to go to the bathroom? We're all in the bathroom. Tran reassured Edie she'd be safe, and so far Edie hasn't asked for more details. Tran says her daughter remains unaware of the violent events that have kept safety drills a requirement in schools. A part of me is very sad that it's part of the sort of day-to-day. -day. Obviously, I think it's very necessary, but at the same time, the fact that it is is a little bit disheartening. I think as a parent and as a community, we're still trying to figure out the, the best way to address this. It's a topic many families are tackling, especially with younger kids. My preschooler and third grader both do safety drills, but my four-year-old Gael doesn't really understand why. Do you know why you had to do the safety drill? Drill means like... It, it means lockdown. Yeah, well, do you know why you had to do that? Yeah. Why? And not saying anything. Oh, okay. My third grader, Augie, has been doing safety drills for years, and he says they do it in case, quote, someone comes into the school. He's unbothered by the process. We get in the closet, and we have to be, like, quiet for, like, about a few minutes. It's pretty packed. Patricia Faldani says that's exactly the wide range of reactions you'll get from kids about safety drills. She's a school social worker for the Elmwood Park School District. Parents know their kids best, and some kids are going to be more anxious about it. Some kids are going to be kind of excited about it. And so you're going to have to gauge your conversation with your child. Baldani says drills can be triggering for some students, and it's best practice for schools not to make them realistic. Parents can also watch for any changes in behavior at home. She says if parents are feeling nervous about the drills, it might help to get details on how the school conducts them. Baldani says it's tough when kids ask about violent events they hear on the news or from others. It can be a balancing act of not introducing too much scary information at one time. Kids are going to naturally have questions, and as much as we try to shield them from that, we can't always shield them from that. And if you can keep the, the information basic and general, and it, it, you're right, it is sad, and that's why we're doing things to make sure that we stay safe, that can definitely help. She says it's best to find out what the child already knows and then answer questions based on that. Validate their feelings. We're just living in a very different world, and it's, it's a terrible thing that we have to do this as adults to talk to children about this, but it is very necessary because we don't want them frightened. For now, Betty Tran is grateful that the scary stuff in Edie's life are things like big roller coasters at Six Flags. I don't like the demons. 
We started on the demon. Oh, yeah, that's a scary one. And four corkscrews. Fran says she'll be ready for whatever questions Edie has next. Susie on WBEZ News. A federal lawsuit has raised questions over how some children are removed from their parents by the state. Edith Brady Lunny wrote about a lawsuit that details one of what may be a dozen similar cases in central Illinois, and she spoke with John Norton. Can you get us into the basis of this particular lawsuit? Sure. Uh, the Kruger's two young sons were taken after their mother was accused of deliberately subjecting them to unnecessary medical care. Uh, that's a syndrome that's uh, known as the Munchausen by proxy syndrome, some people may have heard of. Uh, the child was later found to have a rare genetic disorder that required the multiple surgeries and complicated care that he was receiving. And a third child was taken four hours after his birth. What's kind of interesting about this lawsuit is that a pediatrician, a well-recognized pediatrician, is also named Dr. Channing Petrick. Uh, Dr. Channing Petrick works uh, with the state and authorities in these child abuse and neglect cases. What's the role she played in this case? Well, Dr. Petrak knew about the allegations in this case, but she did not provide an opinion as to whether or not there was medical abuse. And the children initially remained at home during this long investigation that actually stretched over 17 months. Things changed, though, when the baby was hospitalized in Peoria, where Dr. Petrak is based, and the parents refused to allow Petrak into the room to examine him. The lawsuit claims that Petrak was insulted and acting with a, quote, vendetta, unquote, issued a final decision then confirming the medical abuse allegation. Wow. So how long were the children in foster care? Well, they were actually in foster care 466 days, so a little over a year. The third child, uh, the newborn, was taken at the hospital. You also talked with a couple of other people, Michelle Wiedner and Alan Novick with the Family Justice Resource Center. What do they say about these cases? Well, Michelle Wiedner started the Resource Center about four years ago after her own family was falsely accused of abuse. And since then, she's served as an advocate for families. And most importantly, she's helped families find experts who can counter these false abuse claims. Alan Novick, there's a familiar name here in McLean County legal circles. What, what's his involvement with this Resource Center? Well, Alan told me he has helped exonerate 11 families so far in central Illinois, and he's hearing from parents all over the country who are asking for help. The number of experts in this field is very limited, and the cost of combating a false allegation can run into the thousands of dollars, and that's if a family can find a lawyer and the experts they need. Well, it's clear that separation of families, especially unnecessary separation, right, of families, is very harmful to everyone involved. But what's the wider harm that a false accusation causes? The people I spoke with all agreed that this causes an erosion in public confidence in the entire system. When people can't trust the child welfare system, they may be hesitant to make the hotline calls that alert authorities to real incidents of uh, child abuse. Hmm. That's the fear, anyway, that the Krugers and the folks uh, at the Resource Center uh, expressed. Okay, so are, are there some changes that uh, the parents and maybe the resource centers are offering that uh, would maybe help reduce false accusations? Well, first and foremost, they'd like there to be a wider recognition by uh, this very limited 
pool of abuse pediatricians uh, of the alternative diagnosis that may exist in a case. Uh, in the dozen cases that uh, Novick was involved in, the majority of the injuries were caused by a vitamin D deficiency. And in the Kruger's case, it took many months for doctors to figure out what was really going on with the baby. So sometimes it's better wor to work with all the medical specialists treating a child rather than jumping to a single conclusion that can harm everyone. That's Edith Brady Lunny. She spoke with John Norton. Police in Chicago are seizing hundreds of guns equipped with auto sears. Those are illegal thimble-sized devices known on the streets as switches. They turn pistols into machine guns. Coupled with extended magazines, they allow for shooting up to 20 rounds a second. Chip Mitchell tells us more. Kimberly Saunders says her son Parnelius is still reeling. I can see it when she has me over to their apartment on the near north side to meet him and tell me what happened to him this year. She says one night in May, she heard rapid fire gunshots outside. It sounded like, like just automatic. I used to watch these war movies as a kid, so it sounded like one of those machine guns. She rushed to the scene. I saw about 20 kids running across the street. You just heard kids screaming. Saunders suddenly stops her story. Parnelius has stood up. He's leaving the room. You all right, baby? No, I'm trying to cry. That's all right, but you could go ahead and cry. Go to the bathroom. Okay, go ahead, baby. I love you. Can I have a hug? Hearing the retelling of that traumatic night is too much for Parnelius. Saunders hugs him, and he leaves. She takes a deep breath. I saw bodies on the ground. It was three people laying there just in puddles of blood. One of them was 17-year-old Parnelius. She says the hospital told her he'd suffered nine gunshot wounds. He had blood coming from everywhere. Whatever we saw, we put pressure on. Parnelius was among seven people wounded in that shooting who survived. Two others died. Prosecutors say the gunman fired in bursts, 21 shots in all, from a Glock pistol with an extended magazine and an automatic switch that turned the weapon into a machine gun. A WBEZ and Sun-Times investigation has found that the number of Chicago police seizures of switch-equipped handguns has surged since 2018. So has the number of extended magazines that can add dozens of bullets to a gun's capacity. During these same years, a larger share of the city's shootings have been mass shootings, killing or wounding four or more people. Police Superintendent David Brown last month told reporters these trends are linked. Not just here, everywhere in the country is seeing just an explosion of switches and extended high-capacity magazines. So these switches, these auto-seers, here's how they work. Many handguns sold by licensed gun stores are semi-automatic. That means just one shot for every squeeze of the trigger, like this Glock pistol recorded at a gun range. An auto-seer turns a pistol into an automatic. The gun keeps firing as long as the trigger is held. Here's what that Glock model sounds like with a switch in a video from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Many of the switches that Chicago police have seized were made in China. Order one through the mail, off of eBay, whatever. James Barlow heads an ATF officer training division. There's going to be a trail from wherever that's imported into the country that could possibly lead to the individual end user who purchased one. But uh, we're kind of in a transition period, really, I think. Barlow says more and more switches for the U.S. market are now made domestically 
Most of those are 3D printed. If you 3D print one, there's like zero way to trace it to you. As the presence of handguns with switches has increased in Chicago, so has their cachet in popular culture. A rapper from Chicago's South Side dropped this video. The track is called Glock with a Switch. It mainly shows a room full of young men showing off those weapons. It has more than three million views online. The federal government requires a special license to own a machine gun. That dates back to a 1934 law aimed at Tommy guns used by Chicago gangsters like Al Capone. Under that law, the feds consider switches to be machine guns, even switches that are not attached to a weapon. The penalty for breaking that law is up to 10 years in prison. To find out how the switches and extended magazines are circulating, my colleague Frank Main of the Sun-Times reached a trafficker from the city's southwest side who says he has sold hundreds of converted Glock pistols in the last year. If you have a switch, you need a, ma you need a mag, an extended mag, right? You're right, it's like hot dogs and, and mustard, you know what I'm saying? If you have a switch, you gotta have extended mags. Now, this gun seller spoke about his illegal activities on the condition we not name him. He says there's something that makes this weaponry especially attractive to people wanting to maximize harm. It's concealable in a waistband or coat, unlike a rifle. It's more compact, you know what I'm saying, instead of having a big old uh, AK-47. Have you, have you questioned selling these things knowing what the outcome can be when guys use them? Yeah, well, it's like selling drugs. It's like selling dope. If you really think about what's going to happen in the outcome, you're not getting anywhere. Your mind is money. Democrats in the U.S. Senate are pushing for a national strategy against auto seers, but some gun control advocates say cracking down on the switches themselves is probably a lost cause. They say the focus should be to require manufacturers like Glock to make their pistols harder to convert to machine guns. A Glock spokesperson did not respond to questions or interview requests. Just to know that you have a gun that can cause this type of damage, it should be against the law. Kimberly Saunders is that mother whose son was shot nine times in the May incident. Those type of machinery, it should not even be able to be manufactured. You're just putting people at risk for money. Saunders says it's a miracle her son survived. Chip Mitchell with that report. And that's all the time we have for Statewide this week. Be with us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. All of our episodes are available at the website nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. And you can also listen to our weekly podcast through the NPR One app. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.